Hey guys, Bill here. Welcome to the Bill Barnwell Show. That's me. I'm Bill Barnwell. We're going to talk today with newsletter writer Ben Gretsch, who does an excellent job breaking down what matters in the NFL from week to week on what actually happened in week one, what you actually have to care about when it comes to the NFL, when it comes to your fantasy team, and what was just basically noise from a messy and wildly entertaining in its own way week one. We're going to get to that in a second. First, have to tell you guys about a couple of things. First, I want to tell you about a new podcast, Organized Chaos. It's ESPN's newest podcast hosted by former NFL coach Rex Ryan and his former linebacker with the Jets and Ravens, Bart Scott. This duo will be reunited in this weekly podcast with new episodes every Monday. It'll provide listeners with expert insight and analysis on everything happening around the league, featuring trending stories from on and off the field. That's Organized Chaos. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And now here's Ben Gretsch talking about everything that mattered and didn't matter in week one. All right. Joining me now here as promised today on the Bill Barnwell show to talk about week one. I wanted to have this person on because he does an excellent newsletter, stealing signals, talking about what matters and does not matter from each NFL week. And of course, week one, so easy to jump to conclusions, so easy to get fooled. And at the same time, there is meaningful stuff in week one. So joining me to talk about all that is someone I've really enjoyed reading and listening to on various podcasts. It's Ben Gretsch. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm uh, very excited to be on with you as well. I mean, that's great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm certainly happy about that. I feel like better than the alternative. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I really enjoyed reading your newsletter last year. Uh, I've already enjoyed reading week one of the newsletter this year as well. In addition to, of course, a lot of off-season stuff talking about best ball, which I dove too far into this summer for anyone's health, including my own. But a lot to get to with week one. And I wanted to talk about kind of six topics that came to mind after week one, um, some of which you've discussed in your newsletter. And I want to start with, I think the most surprising performance to me from week one, which was the Packers against the New Orleans Saints. We know the Saints have a good defense. We know the Packers probably are not going to be maybe as great on offense as they were a year ago, just given their success in the red zone, given how good Aaron Rodgers was last year. But I don't think anybody expected three points from the Packers on Sunday. So Ben, let's start there. In terms of what you saw from the Packers when, when, when you broke down uh, that game after the fact, number one, were you did, did you feel like the, the final score was, how would I put it? Do you feel like the final score was inaccurate in terms of how the Packers played on a snap-to-snap basis? And then number two, are you concerned about the Packers' offensive success moving forward uh, over the course of the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I'll start with number two. I, I, I would say I'm not particularly concerned. This is a really weird game because we know the Packers invite teams to run against them, and the Saints you know, clearly wanted to do that. They came out and played that way. They only threw 20 passes all game, and they put together a couple first-half drives that were super, super long. And one of the, like, you know, sometimes you just get weird results in football games. One of the mm-hmm. really weird results of all of week one was that when the Packers took over – with a minute left in the first half after the Saints had run three drives, the Packers had to run two because the Saints started with the ball. They had only run 10, 12 offensive snaps. The, wow. the Saints had had two 15 play drives in a nine play drive preceding that for a field goal. The other two were very long touchdown drives, a seven and a half minute one, and then a 10 minute one. And the Packers, I mean, they had actually gotten first downs on both their first two drives, but mm-hmm. had only 
had 12 plays total on those first two drives. They get a couple more before a field goal. I think they had 17 offensive plays in the first half total. Mm-hmm. And, and then they come out in the second half. They actually have a 10 play drive do very well. Rogers throws a pretty bad interception in the green zone. And then, yeah. which you know, I, I always call it inside the 10, the green zone. And then they get a, a, a quick interception on their next drive. Rogers throws another bad pick, two bad passes. I mean, they, they, they were just poor, poor throws by Rogers. I don't know if those two plays necessarily are going to, you know, define their whole season mm-hmm. prior to that. They just almost didn't get a lot of opportunity. Right. And then, after that point, um, they had one the, the the third drive in the third quarter. They get the ball back. I was actually encouraged they, they go for it on fourth. I was encouraged to see them go for it on fourth on their very first drive in the mm-hmm. first quarter. Um, they try a play action. Cam Hayward's right in Rogers' face. It looked like they were considering a, a play action deep shot because they, you know, teams that you, you fall behind, we want them to be aggressive. And and that's sort of I think what happened with the Rod with uh with the Packers here is they they had to basically throw everything out the window and start playing very aggressively. I think they did that correctly. Um, but then sometimes that just goes bad. Like you <laughs> if you're just not completing passes and not converting first downs, then they turn the ball over on their own 22 on that play at fourth and one. Hayward was right in his face. It looked like they want to take a shot. They end up throwing a, a shallow cross to Devontae Adams and Lattimore was right in his hip pocket. Marshawn Lattimore played a phenomenal game. Mm-hmm. So there's all these elements that like, okay, you have a, an elite opposing cornerback that did a really good job on Devontae Adams. Mm-hmm. You have the game script going so negatively. You have a, a team that wants to run the ball against you. You want to ask teams to run the ball, but they do it effectively and they do it in these long, slow drives where, mm-hmm. you know, if you play this game 10 times in a row, even now knowing what we know that the Saints probably have the edge, you, you asked that question about whether the score was was correct. I, I think there's all like this would be the worst outcome for the Packers mm-hmm. is the I way know. I would say it. I, I don't think that you can assume that there would be these 15 play drives successfully both times. It's so hard to do, you know, to do right. these chunk drives. Um, and I don't think you can assume little things. The uh, right after that uh, fourth down, Jameis Winston throws a pick and mm-hmm. probably the worst worst penalty of the week was the, the, the personal foul on Zadarius Smith on that play. He, mm-hmm. it wasn't roughing the passer at all. So the, the Packers didn't get any of those types of breaks, things that go their way that get them back in the game. The things like the Rogers interceptions and some of the other stuff. Yeah, they were bad, but I thought, you know, some of the fourth down aggressiveness, some of the other things we saw were, were actually fairly positive. And then it was just a really weird game where they only ran 17 plays in the whole first half, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, on that 15 play drive, the second one, for the Saints, the Saints convert a fourth and seven with a Jameis Winston pass. They can they have fourth and goal from the three yard line. They're about to go for it. The Packers jump off sides, then they convert uh, on the touchdown pass to Juwan Johnson. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you here. I mean, I, I'm again. Do I think the Packers are going to be as good as they were on offense in 2020? No. I mean, David Bakhtiari being hurt for the first few weeks of the year is a problem. Um, again, like just age and just typical regression towards the mean suggests that Aaron Rodgers is not going to be an MVP caliber player again, even though he looked to me physically totally fine for most of this game. I know that he did throw the two picks. I know what he's claimed publicly about it, um, but we saw a game like this last year, right? Even in the middle of an MVP season, mm-hmm. we saw him uh, against the Bucks in week five yep. or week six, excuse me, where he had um, two interceptions. I think one was were both of them pick sixes. I know one, you know, one of them was a pick six. Um, to Jim they got Dean. crushed. They got crushed. And like, and, and to that, the point about whether or not he can come back from this or they can come back, he played way better in the NFC Championship against that same team last year. So, right. it, you know, that was a, an example of where the game situation was different against even having to face that same opponent later in the season. Right. And I, I mean, I think, 
I, I don't know how you feel about this, actually. Let me ask you how you feel about this. I, I know that whenever there's a successful team in the NFL, and I'm probably guilty of this as well as a writer, I feel like there's always that idea of, okay, well, what's the, the blueprint? What's the formula for beating this team? And a lot of times there's not really one. Like there's some things that are working against anybody, like like the, the Chiefs game, for example, last year in the Super Bowl. Like if your quarterback's going to get pressured 60% of the time with the four-man rush, you're going to lose. But that's not a blueprint that anybody can copy. Um, and when it comes to the Saints game, like I, I think on paper you might sit here and say, okay, well, if you have a superstar corner, if you have a, a team that can run the ball really effectively, that's going to give the Packers problems. But like, e- even if you have a team that can run the ball effectively, even if you have a great cornerback, we've seen Devontae Adams have success against great cornerbacks before. And we've seen that even if you can run the ball effectively, you're not going to have consecutive 15 play drives. You're not going to hold them to, like you said, I think it was 18 plays in, in the first half and three possessions. You're not going to have, you know, not only this, this, this maybe way to attack them, but have so much success with that way to attack the Packers. And I think that um, that makes me think that I, I'm, I would be hesitant to say they're going to be looking more like this team from week one than what we saw last year. Yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right on the regression stuff from last year, but now what we saw in week one, it's like th- there's a regression the other way that's due for right. the Packers for the rest of 2021. Like, um, everything you just said, the, the formula from the Saints. Yeah, okay, great. If you have an elite corner and you have an elite offensive line, right? The Saints have an elite offensive line and the Packers want to let teams run on them. And you also execute as well as they did with the 15 play drives and, and as well as Lattimore played. To your point, Adams can still beat elite corners. And and then, you know, part of why I was sort of breaking down the, the game flow and the game script is like, after that fourth down where they didn't get, uh, they, they didn't convert late in the third and then they didn't they don't get the interception because of the personal foul, Rodgers only plays one more drive. The backups all come in right after that. They wind up playing 16 snaps, like a pretty pretty big chunk of the game mm-hmm. in terms of their play volume because the Packers had run so few plays to that point. And so really like, yeah, you look at the final score, it ends up being 38-3. The Packers still, if they were really trying to score you know, more points in this, if it wasn't so out of hand already at that point, then they, they probably would have gotten back into the game a little with some late scores. But just everything went, went sort of the wrong way for them. Yeah, it just felt like the the absolute like no way game. There's no way we're winning this game. There's no way we're coming close. Everything is going against us. And I don't know. I mean, I, I look at that schedule. They play the Lions next week. And I don't I mean, maybe they won't be as effective as the Niners were for most of that game against the Lions, but it does feel like that is a very nice uh get right spot for the Packers after one week at home now, um, in Green Bay against a Lions defense that we saw on Sunday against the 49ers that was uh, very generous to the Niners for a chunk of that game. And I think there's a lot to talk about with that game, um, especially if you're someone who is interested from a fantasy perspective. And let's talk about that Lions-Niners game where the Niners go up big, they lose Raheem Mostert for the game and then for the eventually for the season. There's the bizarre <laughs> moments pre-game and in-game where we suddenly learn that Trey Sermon is not actually... Uh, in a rotation at running back and he's inactive. And then we learned during the game that Brendan Ayuk is apparently not the Niners number one or number two wide receiver, but playing behind Trent Sherfield. Stuff's come out during the week, of course, uh, about that. So I mean, let's start on the Niners side of this from the offensive perspective. Like, are, are you happy with what you saw from the Niners in this game? Are you concerned because it feels like Kyle Shanahan is just going to do whatever he wants from week to week and we're not going to know any better. Like what, what's going on here with the signers offense? 
I mean, yeah, I, I was, I was, um, I would say ca- like cautiously optimistic, I guess. Um, yeah. It was interesting to see, you know, Trey Lance come in and some packages, throw that TD early. Mm-hmm. Um, they ran a little bit more than they threw. They created some explosive passing plays. Some of that stuff is, you know, they c- created an explosive run play, the long, the long rushing touchdown for, for Elijah Mitchell, who, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about the fantasy thing, like he's, he's your top waiver wire ad this week. Right. And so people, you have to be optimistic. I think about some of that stuff. It's a tough formula though, to just rely on explosive plays, rely on the 79 yard, you know, Debo Samuel touchdown and some of those Mm -hmm. things at the same time, like that's been Kyle Shanahan's offense for several years now. Like he's designed an offense that creates yards after the catch that creates explosive run plays. The Niners are always a really tough one for me to analyze from, from, from the types of, you know, processes that I would analyze any other team with because they, they do things that don't seem like they should work. Like the like yak shouldn't be as stable as it, it seems to be for the Niners, but mm-hmm. um, Shanahan's a good coach. And I think they did, they did a lot correct. And, and there's a lot to be optimistic about basically. So when it comes from a fantasy perspective, how, how do you approach valuing the guys on this offense? Like we know, yes, George Kittle, when he's healthy is going to have a role in this offense. I mean, Debo Samuel has been hurt a bunch, but um, that's really the biggest concern with him when it comes to the running backs, when it comes to Ayuk, when it comes to the other receivers in this offense, when it comes to Jimmy Garoppolo, um, a guy who I think we all kind of ignored during the offseason because we know at some point he's not going to be the starter anymore, but he threw for 314 in a touchdown in this game and looked you know, pretty effective. Trey Lance comes in and uh, runs four plays. I think he had four plays, ran the ball three times himself and threw a touchdown pass you'd figure that's going to impact the possibilities for their runners in the red zone. Like how do you value these guys from a fantasy perspective? Like how much stock are you willing to put in the guys who succeeded in week one being the focal points of this offense for the next few weeks to come? I I certainly don't want to put a ton of stock in that. I mean, I I think (laughs) what happened with whatever happened with Ayuk, I don't know if we have a clear answer, but I, I have to assume that Ayuk is going to have a path to, to earning a rollback in this offense. He was so good last year. At the same time, like Debo looked fantastic. You got to think that Kittle's going to have his big weeks. Obviously the volume wasn't there as much in this one. The running back stuff is, I mean, we, we saw it last year. We've seen it plenty of times. Jeff Wilson late last year and, and had several very good games. Um, Jerk McKinnon had a couple good games like it's probably going to bounce around a little at the same time. I mean, it, for me, it's it's kind of like straightforward. I'm I'm doing it sort of like the old-fashioned way. Like this is a good offense. They're gonna score points. They they create positive situations for the players in the offense. Uh, Elijah Mitchell looks like the most likely guy to get those those roles right now. The, the very positive thing about him is, from a skill set perspective, he he overlaps with he Mostert so much. I mean, he's so mm-hmm. fast and ran a four three seven four three eight whatever it was. Um, they want that role. They want that, that those types of most are touches and they have to replace that now. So I think Mitchell's going to have a role in this offense for the rest of the year, but Trey Sermon has got to be involved. There was points in this offseason where they really liked Trey Sermon. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was pretty bizarre to see him deactivated and, and, and us hearing that he wasn't even one of the top three best running backs. Cause there was a lot of positive buzz coming out of San Francisco yeah. on him at times. Um, Jamichael Hasty will get his opportunities potentially. Uh, Jeff Wilson will probably be back, although we know most won't. But but Jeff Wilson, I think, might factor in later mm. because there's so much uncertainty. Like 
from a fantasy perspective, I'm looking at especially the running backs and saying that we all we know really is that there has to be an answer. There has to be somebody who's going to produce. There's going to be something different than what we were all expecting and what maybe they were expecting, which was mm-hmm. a sort of a Mostert sermon split. Um, they didn't even use sermon week one. And now Mostert's gone. So is sermon a part of that new answer or is Elijah Mitchell? Is Jermichael Hasty? Will Jeff Wilson be later? Will carry on Johnson factor in who they just added to their practice squad? I don't necessarily know that I have all those answers and fantasy it's a lot of it is about operating with an uncertainty. I do know there's going to be production here. And so I want to stash these players in really deep leagues. I want to stash, you know, hasty. I want to stash even Jeff Wilson, if I'm in a, a very deep league and just hold him and see what happens. Cause I think there's a decent chance that he gets an opportunity late in the year. And if he gets an opportunity late in the year, maybe Jeff Wilson has another 25, you know, point week, like he did a couple of times last mm-hmm. year. So those are, sort of the ways that I'm approaching it. I don't, from a week to week standpoint or an individual player full season value standpoint, I think it's tricky because they will do different things week to week. And you have to be aware that things are going to bounce around a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this feels like a classic situation of being greedy where other people are fearful to me. I mean, yes, like you might use half of your free agent budget on Elijah Mitchell and he might be on the practice squad in three weeks. Like that's not out of the realm of possibility. He might be hurt. Like who knows what'll happen. But like, we know what the upside is. Like, this is an offense where they have a good offensive line. They're going to play against tougher opponents on defense for sure, but they're going to run the ball effectively. There's going to be a bunch of touches in the red zone. Like Trey Lance is going to take some of those touches and possibly be a red zone threat, but that might not happen for half the season. And that's a lot of time for Elijah Mitchell to be effective. And it doesn't happen at all this year, which by all accounts is what the Niners hope is. Um, where he's not going to be the the starting quarterback, that might be the case for the entire season. Like you said, there might be an opportunity right. for Jeff Wilson to come back in the second half of the year. And yeah, you know, to have, be clear, I'm, I'm totally sorry. with you. I think you got to blow the budget, Elijah Mitchell. <laughs> I mean, that's the guy that number one underrated prospect profile, good producer in college. Number two has the athleticism, has a role that we think like they. It, it's pretty clear since they drafted him, he, they're thinking of him as the direct backup to, to Raheem Mostert. Mm-hmm. And then number three comes in in week one and is very productive in his own right. Yes, Trey Sermon's there. Yes, everything else. Elijah Mitchell, to me, is very clearly the most likely answer here. And there are scenarios where he is just really, really good as a rookie, that he was underrated a little bit by the NFL. It was kind of bizarre how late he went in the draft. He was a better mm-hmm. prospect than that. I mean, he could be phenomenal again in week two and then phenomenal again in week three. And if he continues to build that, that's only going to you know lengthen his his leash and his potential to continue to have a massive role. Mm-hmm. Speaking of massive roles, go over to the lion side of things here in this game. And, you know, they had a ton of plays in this game and granted they did get an onside kick. The opposing team was up 38, 10 midway through the third quarter. So they're facing a, you know, a, a mostly garbage time situation, even at the very end. Like I know how exciting it is to have them, you know, down eight with the ball, but even then, like you have to get a two point convert. You have to score. You have to get a two point conversion, and then you have to win in overtime. Your winning expectancy is a lot lower, I think, than people might think, given that situation. But there was a ton of opportunity for this Lions team to accrue yardage, to score touchdowns, and we saw guys get big roles. I mean, DeAndre Swift um, had eleven carries and eleven targets in this game. Jamal Williams had nine carries. And a touchdown and had nine nine targets as a receiver, which I don't I didn't think I was gonna expect heading into this game. TJ Hawkinson had 10 targets. Um, Quintez Cephas had seven targets. Jared Goff threw 57 passes in this game. I mean, when it comes to this Lions team, 
Like, I don't think anyone expects them to be good, but are, are we underestimating how interesting they can be as an offense from week to week? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I don't think Jared Goff looked great, but mm-hmm. he stood in there and threw the ball around a little bit, right? Yeah. And so that was good. And this was like, you know, another, certainly another weird football game situation impacts volume impacts these things. You know, you, you mentioned my newsletter, I, I break things down in, in signal and noise. I, I would certainly call this noise. The, the fact mm-hmm. that they ran 84 plays and that they ran 32 of those plays in the fourth quarter, they threw 31 passes in the fourth quarter because they only yes. ran the ball one time in the entire fourth quarter. They added a ton of pass volume. So what I did in stealing signals, I went back like, well, let's look at the first half, right? Like mm-hmm. they only threw, I think, 20 passes in the first half, something like that. Hawkinson had seven of his targets in the first half. Wow. Swift had five. Jamal Williams was at three. He was tied with Tyrell Williams, who left early with a concussion. The wide receivers combined for only four targets. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I talked about coming into the season, when I was doing projections, I almost never project a team's wide receivers as a whole for fewer than 50% of the targets. But this was a team where I was, I believe under that 50% threshold, it's usually up over 60% for the receivers because mm-hmm. I had so many targets projected for both Hawkinson and the running backs and largely Swift. And so I thought this would be one of these rare kind of offenses that flows to the tight ends, you know, primarily through Hawkinson and then also through the running backs. And that's mm-hmm. what we saw. I mean, in the first half, it was led by Hawkinson. You already had 10 targets on the game. Seven of those did come in the first half when, you know, we're a little bit more of a normal game environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Swift had the five targets in the first half, did get some in garbage time, but was very involved. Williams had some very involved. What happened in garbage time is a lot of the receivers got involved. Like Quintez Cephas, you mentioned, a ton of targets. That was, you know, exciting to see. But Williams went out, and then also Cephas had no targets in the first half. All of that was the second half. This uh, Trinity Benson, who got a lot of run, all of his targets in the second half. I mean, that some of that stuff was just garbage time. Like you said, they were coming back. And things broke the way it takes a couple of different things to, to add that much play volume. You have to get the, the onside kick and you have to get the Debo fumble. And then you also have to convert on offense because a lot of times we right. see teams get those types of breaks and then they just don't actually convert. They go four and out, mm-hmm. throw four incomplete passes. They don't add any stats. The Lions did do the second part, and that is the positive note. They were able to move the ball down, score, and, and while they were playing fast, actually do some things in garbage time. We expect them to be in garbage time. So it's mm-hmm. nice to see that when, you know, the opposing defense is backing off in a zone a little bit. They were able to at least, you know, matriculate the ball down the field. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I thought there was a little, you know, some positive notes from that fantasy perspective, like you said, that they were um, willing to be a little bit feisty. And then as far as the like fantasy value, I, I, I thought the Swift and Hawkinson stuff was so, so, so interesting. Just how mm-hmm. much work they both got. Hawkinson looks like he could catch a hundred balls. I mean, yeah. at, at tight end there, are, there were two tight ends last year that caught more than 75 balls. I mean, Logan Thomas was third at, at 72 and it was, mm-hmm. it was Waller and Kelsey. They were both over a hundred, but both over 105. Hawkinson has the potential to be right with those guys. I mean, I, I had him projected at 80. I was already saying he's going to be right up, you know, would have been third last year. Maybe it'll be fourth this year if Kittle stays healthy and has a big mm-hmm. year but right up there in that gap between the haves and have nots at tight end. But now I'm like, I think he might be right up there with those guys in terms right. of how many balls he's going to catch. I mean, he looked fantastic. Right. And I mean, like there's nothing in his, at least to me, you would know better than I would, but it's not like he is a, you know, a sixth round pick who doesn't have the profile of a guy who could catch a ton of passes. Like this is a guy who came into the league. It's not a Kyle Pitts in terms of his athleticism, but like came into the NFL as like a guy who was regarded as a, 
you know, I, I, I think a top tier tight end prospect, like it wouldn't be shocking if, you know, he did work into that kind of role. And if the lions do need just someone to throw the football to, that's going to be the first place Jared Goff looks, especially given how thin this wide receiver core was. And they've already copper shot Perriman and now Tyrell Williams, like you said, dealing with a concussion. Yeah. And one of the things I'll note on Hawkinson, I mean, he had that great pro- prospect profile. My favorite status targets per outrun to, mm-hmm. basically for any fantasy value because the routes run element is sort of a better volume element than like per game. We want to know how much they're actually out in routes. That's important, but also do they earn targets at a good rate? Hawkinson fairly solid as a rookie moved up in year two. Now looks like there's less competition and everything. He could have a massive, you know, potential targets per route run role, but also his routes went up from last year. His role wasn't necessarily totally full-time last year. We do see tight ends break out a little bit later traditionally than, than in basically any other position. And so he's going into year three is very good player, uh, you know, from a prospect perspective and all of that, but he showed that target upside. And then the other side of it was, can he be efficient once he earns the target, like yards per target, yards per catch, those things mm-hmm. hasn't necessarily been efficient so far this year, but the bull case for him was like, okay, now he's stepping in this, in the situation where there's tons of targets, but also he gets efficient on those. And he had, mm-hmm. you know, a very efficient day in, in week one. So that was, also very positive, you know, plenty of, plenty of target volume and then also doing stuff with it. That's all great. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better with the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit style pizza in the country. There is no competition and right now get five dollars off any eight corner pizza with code eight save that's the number eight s-a-v-e go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a jets pizza location near you again try jet signature eight corner pizza and get five dollars off with code eight save that's number eight s-a-v-e jets pizza better because it has to be so lions 18 that we weren't really thinking about all that much heading into week one, and they score a bunch of points. Another team that managed to pull that off was the Houston Texans, a team that I wasn't even sure what their offense was going to look like heading into week one. And then suddenly 37 points for the uh, Houston Texans in week one. They blow out the Jags. Tyrod Taylor, a guy who was left for dead after total whiffs uh, the last two times he was a starter, in part last year because he got stabbed by his team doctor. But um, <laughs> I mean, you know, like Tyrod Taylor was not someone I think we were expecting a lot of heading into the season. And here he is week one, 291 and two touchdowns, 40 yards rushing. I mean, hitting Brandon Cooks for big plays. At the same time, I, I watched that game again and I sort of felt like it was a little more about the Jaguars defense being horrific than it was about the Houston Texans being all that great on offense. But what did you see here from the Texans? Uh, are, are, is it fair to write them off? And did anything change for you versus what you had expected heading into the season after their first week against the Jaguars? I mean, did anything change? Maybe a little bit, because I thought they would be pretty horrible. But I actually did say in a couple places last week that I thought the Texans might win this game, and then it might end up being their only win of the year. And <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm backing <laughs> off of that. They they ran 40 times, yep. and they weren't exactly good at running the ball. They were sub four yards per carry. Um, they 
were 12 of 21 on third down. So to your point about the Jaguars, I mean, they were, they were kind of doing what the, the Saints did, moving the ball very slowly and mm-hmm. methodically down the field, but they were able to just convert all these third downs. That's tough to thrive on, right? You, you have 21 third downs. That's already a lot of third downs. The fact that they were able to convert 12 of them is pretty big, actually. Um, I mean, I'll stand for Tyrod Taylor any day of the week. I love the guy, but and he looked like his Bill self. He looked awesome. It was so fun to see him play well again after you know not really getting the chance with the chargers last year should have obviously <laughs> to your point got stabbed by his own team doctor should have should have obviously gotten a little bit of a, a longer of a look so I, I was yes. very excited to see him play and play well um but you know t- he takes his time to throw he'll take some sacks sure I, I think that's sort of the trade-off he's not a perfect quarterback that's a trade-off to the fact that when he does get away from the pressure he's going to scramble for a positive place. He's going to, he also does a very good job of not throwing interceptions, even though, uh, or as a, as a part of that, he, he's taking his time because he's not throwing into um, dangerous spots. If you will, maybe he should take a few more chances, but there is some positive trade-offs to that. The thing was that the, the Jaguars didn't really pressure him too much or, or no. didn't make it too difficult on him. He's going to face some teams where his offensive line is not going to be able to protect him as much. They're going to take more sacks. They're going to get off schedule. They're not going to be able to convert 12 of 21 third downs. You know, they're not going to get 21 third downs because they're not going to be continuing these drives. Um, they're not going to be able to just, you know, run for sub four yards a carry and then, and then convert on third and five or whatever. That's not, it's not how you win in the modern NFL. I, I don't think we're going to see a lot more positive outcomes like this for Houston, but it was, it was cool to see for, especially for Tyrod. Yeah. I mean, I think Tyrod was excellent. Like, but like, I, I could think of a play I saw, for example, where they just totally blew a blitz pickup and had a guy running free on Tyrod. He made a guy miss. He kind of stepped over him. He made the guy miss again from the ground, stepped away and hit a big plate of cooks. And like, yep. it's awesome that Tyrod did that, but like people are going to have better free rushers than the Jaguars do. Um, by the way, Mark Ingram, <laughs> Mark Ingram in this game, the first runner over 30 to have 25 carries in a game since 2018, since Adrian Peterson and LaShawn McCoy pulled it off. I don't think that's going to happen again, again. Yeah, for Mark Ingram, maybe for anybody in the NFL over the age of 30 this season. But yeah, I mean, like I, I think Tyrod is going to have opportunities for tip big plays. Like I think, Yep. You know, they have it might not come in the flow of the game like 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 it did in this week. I don't think they're going to have that ability just to go crazy on third down again. But given that they're probably going to be trailing by two touchdowns a fair chunk of the time, like uh, from what we saw in this game, like I, I don't think it's that crazy to think that Tyrod could have some opportunities to score in the second half of games after they've had their struggles. Yeah. And he's an exciting player. Fun to watch. I mean, he's going to do some stuff. Cooks is a good player, too. I mean, they. Mm-hmm. Cooks is, I would I would argue, very easily their best skill position player, and he I mean he suits Tyrod well. To your point, Tyrod extended that play. That was a, a really fun play because he kind of like stepped through and then back around the guy. He's kind of like dunking on him. Yeah. Um, and then after he extends it, Cooks is running free. It was like the uh, the fifty yard gain or whatever. I mean, Cooks had a uh, a huge day, and in part because he had some some big plays on on plays like that. I assume he'll have some more of those for sure. But um, it is tough to imagine, like from a fantasy perspective, Cooks being very consistently productive, their mm-hmm. offense getting enough play volume, all of those things. Those are going to come in in spurts. And mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we'll see some we'll see some more highlights from Tyrod and Cooks. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be tough to count on from week to week, but I do think that'll happen as well. Um, 
Elsewhere in the AFC South, one of the other big disappointments from week one was in Tennessee, where the Titans lost 38-13 to the Cardinals. I, I don't, Was that the highest total heading into week one, that game? Uh, Thursday night, I believe, was high. Thursday night, sorry, yeah, Thursday yeah. night, excuse me. Um, but it was high. It was 52 or whatever. Yeah, it was a high, high total. Yeah, and I mean, the Cardinals held up their end of the bargain. The Tennessee Titans did not. Uh, it was a certainly disappointing game from Tennessee. They looked overmatched against the Cardinals, who, I mean, on offense, that's one thing, but on defense, a team that has maybe the worst cornerback depth chart in football, they were not able to challenge the Cardinals all that often. So are you concerned here? Like, like, you know, given that there are three, or I guess four, if you conclude Tannehill, but, but certainly three players who were going pretty highly in fantasy drafts and Julio Jones, AJ Brown and Derrick Henry, are you concerned about their ability to be impactful after what you saw against what we don't expect to be a very good defense in the Arizona Cardinals? Yeah. I mean, a little bit, certainly. Um, but there are some, certainly not to the extreme nature of the Packers, but some shades of what happened with the Packers. I mean, the Titans were behind by double digits from the eight minute mark of the first quarter on. There's been a lot of talk um, in sort of the analytic circles about how they were way off of their, their heavy play action tendencies from last year. I think they led the league last year, 30% or more. Um, Not a number that I dig into a ton, but uh, certainly they, they were a, a very heavy play action passing team, which we know improves the efficiency of the offense. And they were at something like 10% or 11% in week one, way, way down. Right. But part of that you have to assume is the fact that they were down by double digits. So, I mean, even just from a, uh, an offensive coordinator perspective, you know, there's been good, um, good evidence to show that play action doesn't require establishing the run game, but people are going to think that you need to establish the run game to call play action. I mean, or at least we've seen that from some of these coordinators. So Mm -hmm. that's at least a possible explanation of of the lack of play action. I have some optimism that they'll get back to a little bit, something a little bit more resembling what was so successful for them over the last couple of years. And for Tannehill, when they're not, you know, trailing by double digits for seven eighths of the game. Right. So, um, but there, there are some concerns like their offensive line had some issues. Tannehill was pressured 17 times. Um, the week one high was like 23, I think, mm-hmm. um, right up there uh, among those, those leaders, they, they didn't really look necessarily as in sync. They did look like they were a little bit lost without our Arthur Smith calling the plays. Maybe he was mm-hmm. pulling some of all, all the right strings that were, um, helping them be so successful over the last couple of years. But I don't know. I, I I'm pretty optimistic. I, I think still that, that we'll see in different game scripts, we'll see, positive more positive outcomes mm-hmm. um and then you know I'll, I'll also say i was a little bit impressed by the cardinals defensive line they added jj walker oh, chandler yeah. jones definitely was was good in this game as well so maybe maybe it's a little bit of both maybe the cardinals defense is especially their line is going to be a little better than we thought yeah i think that's the tough part though is like uh, and i think about this when it comes to the falcons too another team that now that has arthur smith that we expected to be very play action heavy that was very disappointing against the eagles in week one where I kind of think, okay, well, if you can't stop their pass rush, which the Cardinals certainly could not, sorry, Tennessee certainly cannot do against Arizona, and the Falcons really struggled against the Eagles as well. Like, I would understand if you're an offensive coordinator and your response to that is, well, the last thing we're going to do is heavy play action, seven-step drop, try and get a guy downfield because our quarterback's going to get killed. Like, I, I think you can do that. You can max protect and you can 
try and hit it that way. And I'm surprised Tennessee didn't do more of that, but I'm not surprised that they maybe went with more quick game and try to get the ball out of, of Tannehill's hands earlier because they didn't think they could hold up against Chandler Jones. So I, I do think I'm still optimistic about this passing game. Like I still think that AJ Brown's going to be a monster. And we even saw in this game, like he had an impressive touchdown. There were on, on the drive where Tannehill scored on the sneak. I mean, there were two touchdown passes that I don't know if I'd call them drops necessarily, but like balls that, you know, hit his receivers in the hands or hit, hit them closely where it would hardly have been a surprise if they had caught the ball as opposed to having it knocked out or, or having it be an incompletion. And I, I think they're going to be fine. Now, I think the big concern is what happens in the weeks to come against other defensive lines, because if they can't protect Tannehill, that's the big problem for me. Like I, they're not going to be down two touchdowns in, in the weeks to come. I think they're going to be in more competitive games, but if they can't protect in third and long, that's a difference maker. Cause I think that does sort of reduce the playbook um, for what Tennessee can do. And they were, they, they were always a better run blocking team than pass blocking team to me, but they were better at protecting Tannehill over the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. The offensive line does look like it could be a little bit of an issue. Yeah, and I mean, if you're like, they're counting on Taylor Lewan, who's their most expensive lineman, their best lineman, to be a guy who can hold up one-on-one. And if he can't hold up one-on-one, there's major problems down the rest of the line as a result. So I think that's the um, that's the concern for me moving forward. I, I don't think that Tannehill's suddenly bad. I don't think that, you know, that I, I, like the play calling does matter, but like at the end of the day, like there's enough talent there that I think they can make it work if the offensive line is competent. I brought up the Eagles. I want to talk to you about them as well. Um, certainly a big game for Jalen Hurts, a big game for Devontae Smith. Uh, the Eagles playing a Falcons defense that it, it's fair to say has been picked on um, over the past couple of years. You know, 32 points. Uh, Jalen Hurts goes for 264 and three touchdowns, adds 62 yards rushing. Do you think this is a sustainable offense for the Eagles? Can they expect to be this good week after week? Or was this more of a one-game blip based on uh, who they were playing and, and the game script? Yeah, that, I mean, it, it's it's so funny. We're talking about, like, what can you overreact to? What can you buy into? And, and obviously, mm-hmm. one-game samples can be a lot. You know, I don't want to necessarily beat Falcons fans while they're down because they've been through a lot. But, like, that, it, some of this ha- – I think the Eagles did what you would hope they would do against uh, – an opponent that wasn't really challenging them very much. Mm-hmm. Jalen Hurts had the the lowest average intended air yards of any quarterback in week one. So they kept things pretty manageable for him. At the same time, I think that was smart, right? I think that was a positive thing to see from Nick Sirianni. We saw some aggressiveness in his coaching in other ways. Uh, I really liked the play design on Devontae Smith's touchdown. They had Zach Ertz outside of him, did a little rubber out, um, and had had Smith kind of running a wheel fade, whatever you want to call it, and, and trying to get the separation right by the line of scrimmage, where then Hertz just has a single read if the separation's there. Boom! I'm just throw, that's where I'm throwing the ball, and that's what he did, and it was a very easy touchdown. Um, everything else was very underneath, and the Falcons kind of weren't guarding <laughs> anyone, and so he was able to 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 throw the ball very effectively. Mm-hmm. What I will say about the Eagles, and I, I do think I missed. The, the potential excitement about this offense until too late in draft season, people re- read my newsletter know that I was kind of rethinking it in the, in the final couple of weeks, but mm-hmm. 
Um, especially as Quez Watkins came on, who was a guy who I really liked as a very underrated prospect. We look at things like age adjusted production mm-hmm. at the college level. He was good young at college at Southern Miss. Um, Jalen Rager, tough first year, but reasons to think he could bounce back in year two. Another guy who was very good young in college, Devonta Smith, obviously uh, phenomenal receiver to find out that they were going to go into the season with those three guys and, and planning to use those three guys as their three main receivers. You knew that they had two pretty good tight ends. And then also the, there was an originally some talk that Boston Scott was going to be that Kenneth Gainwell. Gainwell's another guy like Elijah Mitchell was talking about way better prospect than where he went in the draft fell um, for, you know, potentially dubious reasons. I'm, I'm not sure why, why he fell all the way to the, I believe it was the fifth round. Um, some people had him as high as like third, third or fourth running back in this class. And there's a lot in his pro- prospect profile that is positive and reasons to like that. The Eagles clearly saw that throughout camp. They went into this game. They played only Miles Sanders and Gainwell on offense. Mm-hmm. Boston Scott didn't play a single offensive snap. He did play some special teams. He was out there, but not playing on offense. So now you have two pretty good running backs. You're deploying them, you know, to complement each other in good ways. You have three pretty good receivers, young guys, but all have good prospect profiles, could have upside. We've seen some good things out of Quez on some on some uh, wide receiver screens and short passes. We saw Rager score on a play like that this week. So Devontae Smith do more down the field than, than either of those other two receivers have maybe done down the field so far, but mm-hmm. explosive players at receiver, two good tight ends that we know about good offensive line. Yes. Um, this, I mean, yeah, like it's smart play calling against an inferior opponent, do a good job. Um, showed some tempo in the first half, second fastest first half time to snap of any team this week. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a lot to be really excited about. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I think that was, my argument for them being better than people expected on offense heading into the season was just by the time Jalen Hurts got in the lineup last year, they were down five start intended starting linemen. Like it was Jason Kelsey and they were down at least five starting linemen um, where Jason Peters was supposed to come in and also got hurt. Not that Jason Peters was going to be great necessarily. And Jordan Mailata came in and did a good job and ended up earning an extension. But like, this is a much different offensive line for Jalen Hurts than the line he was working with last year. And you would figure that's going to help for a guy who's going to be, you know, working design run games. And I think there was also some preseason chatter about how maybe the offense wasn't being molded to Jalen Hurts' strengths. And yet here we are week one and the offense looks perfectly molded to what Jalen Hurts does well. The one thing I would say you can't count on, and I think the Eagles defense is going to be better than people give it credit for, but the one thing you can't count on, I think, is those three short fields in the second half. They got a possession from the 50-yard line where they scored a touchdown, uh, and then two possessions after the Falcons failed on downs late in the fourth quarter inside the Atlanta 31-yard line that turned in 10 points. So 17 points total on three short fields in the second half, and that's going to help at the end of the day. But I, I think in terms of the efficiency, in terms of how they looked on tape, in terms of what we saw from them on a stat-to-stat basis, I think there's definitely a lot of reasons to be optimistic that they could be a better offense than maybe we would have figured given Jalen Hurts' numbers by the time he came out last season. Yeah, absolutely. And completely agree. I mean, the one thing we're going to need to see from them more as they face more difficult defensive challenges is the ability to actually throw the ball down the field. You sure. know, you, you have to be vertical. You have to throw the ball down the field in the modern NFL. They're not going to be able to get by just with short passing, bubble screens, there's going to be some, you know, fierce secondaries that are going to make that challenging. And so they're going to have to do more things 
Um, we'll, we'll, you know, have to see Hertz do more with his legs probably as well, but he didn't have to as much in this game. And he, and he looked good when he, when he needed to a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, you know, the, they have the weapons, they have the dimensions and all those things that you need to have. So I'm actually, I'm very excited. Good young offense. It's a team that like should be pretty excited about. I, I actually had Washington potentially winning this division. Now that Fitzpatrick's out, that completely changes the outlook for them. They have such a great defense. I thought Fitzpatrick could make their offense pretty strong. Dallas came out throwing so heavily, looked good in week one, very competitive with, with Tampa. But I think the Eagles now look like a team that could potentially contend for, you know, what was probably going to be one of the weaker divisions in the league, but, but could, could potentially contend for a division title. If their offense is explosive, it's young. It, it could be a lot more high upside than people realize. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want to finish up here, maybe talk about uh, your priors heading into the season, because of course, you know, after thinking all off season about how things are going to be approached, I know from my perspective, like I have an idea, okay, week one's going to go like this. These guys are going to be good. These guys are going to struggle. I know I shouldn't think about it that way, but I'm human. And we get to week one and a lot of those challenges or a lot of those uh, opinions, those priors do get shattered quickly. So in, in terms of your priors heading into week one, it might be a team we've already talked about or whether it's a different team we didn't get to. Is there a team to start that confirmed your release where you feel like you you held this opinion about this team or this player or this situation and after week one, you feel even stronger about it, that you feel even better, like, like, like your prior is so significantly confirmed to week one that you'd feel even more confident about it? it's funny. Cause I think, again, I think about everything in like a pro- probabilistic term. So yes. the, the confirming is, is harder than the sort of rejecting something. There's some <laughs> things that were outside of the probabilities that I even thought were possible. Right. So yes. there's, there's more that I feel like I was definitely wrong about. I'll say the bucks coming out and throwing like they did, that might be a team that goes basically full bills and mm-hmm. doesn't really have running back value. I mean, we saw a lot of issues with their running backs on Thursday night, but they have so many weapons at receiver. You go back to like that Mike Leach quote from years ago, where he talks about like offensive balance isn't 50, 50 run pass. It's you have five skill position players and balancing the ball you know, to all of them. Mm-hmm. That's what, I mean, and the bucks, especially like they're not guardable. I mean, I was saying late in that game when, when the Cowboys took the field goal, it was like fourth and six, but to the field goal to go up one that they should have went for it there. Even though the, the win probability models were saying pretty strongly, they should kick that, take the one point lead and then try to play defense because there's 90 seconds left. And Tom Brady was going to get back into field goal range, not because Tom Brady's superhuman, but because he has four really good weapons that, and you're not guarding any of them in this game. And right. one of them is going to win. <laughs> and so like, he's going to, and he's going to be good enough to at least find those people. Obviously. I mean, you, we have to give Tom Brady plenty of credit too. And so um, I think the Cowboys should have been a little more aggressive late in that game. That would have been super aggressive. They had an earlier fourth down. They probably should have done, um, but try to win it right there basically. But th- that was part of what I was thinking with that Cowboys decision or, or you know, lack of the, the decision to go for it was the Bucks offense as it's constructed right now. I mean, they are, they, they can protect Brady. Mm-hmm. Antonio Brown looks pretty good. He's still like I was talking about that targets per route run stat. He's still on a routes run basis has been very, very good on that stat, even into his, you know, in, well into his thirties. Now, anytime he's played uh, you have Mike Evans, you have Chris Godwin who looked fantastic other than the fumble and the one where he was twirling around backwards and, and wasn't able to catch it. I mean, from a fantasy perspective, he could have had a monster game if he mm-hmm. doesn't fumble and does bring in that pass. He still had a very, very good game. You have Gronk looking better than last year. 
And you have Brady managing all of these weapons. I mean, this is going to be a team, I think, that's going to throw a lot, and it's just going to put a lot of pressure on defenses. It's going to be really hard for Ds to to guard all four of those guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as long as those guys are available, and and Antonio Brown's case, that could be tough, but, you know, it's not impossible. And we saw, hey, even when Antonio Brown wasn't there last year, we saw moments where Scotty Miller looked good, and and I think, you know, wouldn't it be shocking if they were a a pass-heavy team this upcoming season? So you mentioned on the flip side, it might be a little easier to find opinions you held where, you know, it, it's gone beyond even, I guess, your 95th percentile expectation or your fifth percentile expectation. So what stands out to you uh, as opinions you held before the year that you might even already be ready to abandon? Um, yeah, I don't I don't know if abandon, but certainly okay. in week one, when they completely go away from what you're thinking, alarm bells are going off. The, sure. the Falcons with Arthur Smith, I thought would be really interesting. They were not, they were especially not interesting in terms of their pass rate over expectation being heavily negative. Mm. Um, not, <laughs> they didn't even throw the ball when they're, when they're losing. Um, that was a, that was a tough one. I mean, we, we know that he ran the ball more in Tennessee. They have thrown a lot in the past in Atlanta. We didn't necessarily know how that would mesh, but I thought Arthur Smith was, pretty sharp. I mean, he, he did a very good job in Tennessee and we saw Tennessee struggle a little bit without him. So it's kind right. of odd that Arthur Smith leaves Tennessee and both teams seem to have been negatively influenced by that. I mean, I, I would throw both these teams, I guess, into the, the answer to this question. The other one is the Bengals. I mean, I, I kind of expected with Joe Burrow's injury, they'd come out slow, but they were the lowest pass rate over expectation team in week one last year, every single game Burrow started, they were a, a positive pass rate over expectation and their expected pass rate in all those games was high because they were struggling, they were trailing, um, but they were still throwing more than you would expect in all of those games. They were the league's lowest um, you know, pass rate versus expected pass rate in week one here in 2021. I, I expect that we'll see them pass more. I mean, this is another team that likes almost exactly like the Bucs, like the strength of their team. Jamar Chase looked great. Like those preseason drops stuff that was just nonsense, obviously did, you know, not a long-term issue, right? I mean, he'll, he'll probably drop some passes this season, whatever, but like drops are not that important. They're a very small percentage of plays. Um, T. Higgins is phenomenal. Missed a little bit of time, but he dude's going to be amazing. Tyler Boyd barely even needed to get get used much in this game. Um, I think, you know, I Joe Mixon, good, good football player too, hasn't necessarily been as great as I think a lot of people in the fantasy community think. Um I think those three receivers are the strength of the team. And so it would be really interesting to see if they get back into that pass heavy mold and, and try to win games by spreading the ball around those guys first sort of, and then, and then getting it to the running back, which is something that, I mean, we saw it a lot of places this week. We saw it happen to Clyde Edwards, a a little bit. We saw it happen to Najee Harris a little bit. Um, some, some running backs that played a lot, but were kind of not have as well, maybe not Harris is a good example, but Clyde Edwards, a almost looked like, an afterthought at times behind right. Tyree Killen and Travis Kelsey. And so anyway, uh, that certainly wasn't the case for Mixon. Their offense was just riding Mixon and just so much volume for, for, for Joe Mixon in week one. That was not what I expected <laughs> there at all. Um, and Buffalo was another one. Uh, you, you have talked uh, about, you know, some expecting some regression there, but, I thought they would be more successful in week one, even against a good Pittsburgh Steelers defense. There was maybe more regression than I was counting on right away. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like a a lot of little things adding up. Yeah. Like Josh was a little bit worse than he was last year. The offensive line was a little bit worse. 
they they couldn't block TJ Watt at all. Like he was just phenomenal in that game. Um, whenever someone tells you that players need to play in the preseason, just show them TJ Watt from week one. And that's the answer to that question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I think they'll be fine, but it also wouldn't be shocking if like fine meant they were the seventh best offense in football as opposed to being the third or whatever they were a year ago. Um, which isn't that surprising. That's pretty par for the course when you have a team making that sort of leap. But yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think the Falcons were really disappointing. A lot of Corderell Patterson for anybody's taste yeah. in 2021. Why, why is he running I formation carries up the middle in the first half? Like, what is happening? <laughs> I, not... I don't understand. <laughs> like, what was that? <laughs> I, was I mean, like, what are you doing? This is a, <laughs> I mean, Corderell Patterson has a, you know, a particular set of skills. And he's a very exciting player. Uh, he's beyond 30 at this point. He is not an I formation up the gut running back ever, and especially not at this stage of his career. What are you doing? And what's even more disappointing is that he was actually probably the most effective player in the Atlanta offense right. in week one. He averaged <laughs> nearly eight yards a carry in week one. Uh, so that, that's the more concerning part to me is that like, they might be inclined to use even more Cordero Patterson next week. Like, yeah, he was the spark that really got this offense going. Um, I'm hoping that's not the case for the Falcons. 30 year old Cordero Patterson breakout as a workhorse running back. I mean, I mean, I've listen, seen crazier things. You do on, on your podcast with Sean Siegel, you guys talk about plenty of zero running back strategies. This is not Cordero Patterson, the perfect example of why you shouldn't be investing heavily in running backs when you can just get a perfectly good Cordero Patterson on the waiver wire. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I hesitate to say he's a perfect example because we don't really know what's going to happen, but um, I hope he is because people still aren't buying in this week. I mean, he's not even getting talked about as a huge waiver ad. There's some some sites and leaks where he's still listed as a receiver. No one knows what to do with Cordero Patterson. <laughs> he's, he's so unique. He's just a special player is what it boils down to. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is really good. Ben, uh, can you plug your newsletter and also plug the podcast you're part of. Yeah, sure. Uh, the newsletter is bengrash.substack.com. It's called Stealing Signals. I write uh, fantasy-focused breakdowns every week of each game, and then at the end of each game, um, highlight what I think is the signal and the noise. It is a you know a premium newsletter. You have to pay dollars a month to access it, but love to have anyone who wants to join us. The podcast is Stealing Bananas, which you can find at Road of His Radio with me and Sean Siegel. We're talking about a lot of the same stuff, signals and noise. And the Stealing Bananas name is a, a mashup of my Stealing Signals article. Sean used to have a, a website called Money in the Banana Stand, which is an Arrested Development reference. Um, people always ask about the name, but that's where the name come from, comes from. Uh, but yeah, we're doing that three times a week. Sunday night recap episode, Wednesday episode, Friday episode. You'll catch us uh, all year long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am a paying subscriber to the newsletter and... Oh, easy, and, easy resub for me. And, and um, I got to mention ship chasing as well. You were on, you did the, the randomizer. I a did. Couple, a couple weeks back with, with Peter Overzet. Peter Overzet, great, um, great fancy guy, great entertaining, you know, but <laughs> very multi talented Peter Overzet. And, and Pat Crane, who's over at NBC, and I will talk on Wednesday nights on a live stream ship chasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I checked my randomizer team after week one it turns out alex smith was not a good qb1 for that team but hey <laughs> we will see plenty of football left to go and an opening in washington at the moment yeah <laughs> maybe maybe he'll be back who knows maybe he will be back i'm a little skeptical but plenty of seasons could he come. win comeback player of the year two years in a row 
I mean, if he came back and they made it to the playoffs again, I feel like I would. I don't have a vote for comeback player of the year. I would vote for him. I mean, again, yes, you just you should just win it every year. Get get your futures in now, Alex Smith, back to back comeback player of the year. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. Again, thanks so much to my guest, Ben Gretsch. Check out his newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. Check him out on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. We'll be back next week. More audio on the way for week two. I'm also, by the way, this week, uh, about to tape it very shortly here on Wednesday afternoon, about to appear on the Mina Kime show featuring Lenny. So if you are not sick of me after an hour of listening to me talk about football, you can do that again with our old friend Mina over on her podcast. Thanks so much for listening and more audio on the way.